Richard, we're talking about your book, Hatch, Match and Dispatch, The Catholic Guide to the Sacraments. And we're on to confirmation. That's a hard one sometimes, isn't it? Confirmation is a hard one. It got split off in the fourth century and it was together with baptism, Eucharist and confirmation. And our Orthodox brothers and sisters still have the three together. So when they bring a baby to be baptized, a lot of Catholics may not know this, but they fully immerse their children. They've always had full immersion. They um, make the consecrated bread and wine into a paste. And there's a spoon, the communion spoon is a gift that the godparents always give their godchild. And they spoon the Eucharist into the mouth of the baby. That's how they receive communion. And then they do the final confirmation of the spirit. In the Western church, once we Christianity becomes the state religion, finally, with the, Theodosius the first, in um, about three, uh, 380, I think, or 384, somewhere there, the church exploded in numbers, and bishops who were like parish priests now had huge areas and massive numbers of people were joining. And because they did most of the initiations, um, then all of a sudden they couldn't do all the initiations, so it was delegated to the presbyters, to the priests, and but they still had a role in the Western church. So then they, they kept to themselves the final confirmation of the spirit. And that's why they all got, all three got split off. And there's a movement to bring them back together. And I, there's a very strong theological and liturgical um, reason for that. I have to say also that confirmation for me anyway was presented as a bit of a puberty ritual. And I think it was in Ireland too, that somehow you would become an adult for Christ. Well, all I can say is I think I was confirmed around 11 or 12. And while I liked the idea of me becoming an adult for Christ, no one told my mother because I didn't get any more freedom as a 12-year-old once I was confirmed than I had the day before, I can assure you. I was still well and truly under her authority. My father died when I was very young. So, but confirmation is still a good idea, and whenever and wherever we do it is finally confirming the spirit. I tell Catholics what they don't know. Confirmation comes, of course, from the experience of Pentecost. Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentecoste, which simply means the 50th. And in the book, I go into some detail about numbers. One, three, seven, 12, 40, and 50 are all incredibly important in the Bible. So one is God's number, the number of unity. Three, uh, everything that happens on the third is an intervention of God in the world. So not by accident, Jesus out of the tomb on the third day. Seven is the seven days of creation, except there aren't seven days of creation. There are six, two lots of three, because on the seventh, nothing happens. God doesn't create on the seventh. Uh, God delights in creation. I love that. He looks at the world and says it's very good indeed. Twelve is the twelve tribes of Israel. So not by accident we have twelve men as apostles to mirror the twelve patriarchs in Genesis. And then we have forty, a time of formation. Jesus wasn't literally in the desert for forty days. It's shorthand in the Bible for formation. And uh, of course, as you may know, we have 45 days in Lent anyway, because a Sunday in Lent can never be a day of fast and penance. We could have been eating chocolate on a Sunday in, in Lent for our whole lives, but no one told me this. But if you go from Ash Wednesday to the Holy Thursday Vigil, which is officially the season of Lent, it's 45 days. Because they're Sundays of Lent, then in Lent, they can't be just no Sunday since Easter Sunday is meant to be a day of penance and fasting. And then finally, we have 50. It was the year of Jubilee. Most people in Jesus' day were dead by 50. So once in a lifetime, they did three things. They set the slaves free, they forgave the debts, and they let the crops go fallow. Now, I think this is incredibly rich for confirmation and what it means to be a confirmed Christian. If I'm a confirmed Christian, 
What am I doing to forgive people? It's got to be the cornerstone of Jesus' teaching. It is the cornerstone of Jesus' teaching. Tough, but important. And forgive myself, by the way. Secondly, what am I doing to set people free? So I want to forgive people, I want to set them free, and let crops go fallow meant once every 50 years they were trying to restore the earth. So people say Pope Francis is all very trendy with his attitude to the environment and creation. No, he's not. It's right back into the biblical notion of caring for the earth, being a steward of the earth. What am I doing for the environment? If I'm a confirmed Christian, then I'm meant to be doing something very important. The second thing I tell people in the book is that if they're like me, any of our listeners and watchers right now are like us, we often heard Pentecostals going out and they spoke in tongues. But if you actually read the text very carefully, it says, those who were present in Jerusalem heard in their own language. There is a very good argument to say that the gift of Pentecost is as much the gift of listening as is the gift of tongues to speak. And I think in the Catholic Church, in your country and mine right now, we need the gift of listening. Very deep, very humble, very profound listening, particularly to victims of clergy sexual abuse, but also to many other people who have been hurt, who feel excluded, who feel the pain of the fringe of our community, and to listen to their experience, their take on how God has worked and Christ has been. So I think confirmation can, should be, and must be reclaimed as a fairly sensible and wonderful thing. The final thing I say about confirmation is that the the gift of the Spirit in Paul's letters and when Jesus appears after the resurrection is the gift of peace. Almost everywhere, Jesus is giving the gift of peace. And when the Spirit comes, uh, Paul says, you know, grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Spirit of peace be among you and be with you. And I don't think in your country and mine, with mental health as poor as it is, particularly among our young, we've ever needed more to create peace, to go after it and to try and cultivate it, to have silence in our lives, contemplation in our lives, to not be so frenetic. And so I think these are really rich ideas if we know where we've come from and what they can do right here, right now. These sacraments just don't become fossilised things from the liturgical museum. They become wonderfully active that speak to a modern society right now. Yeah, because I know even the gifts, and I know you talk about it being a right for into adulthood, but like when people enter those teenage years when confirmation is on offer, if we look at the gifts that are on offer from the Spirit, you know, wisdom, understanding, all of those, they really, really encourage. They're things they really do need at that age when it's fairly full on in that transitional stage. Now, I accept entirely that Eastern rite that may be much better if we had it earlier. But the notion also of the Spirit, the neglected part perhaps of the Trinity, we talk a lot about father and son, father and mother, if you want to be inclusive. But the spirit, Paul is really strong on that as over and against the law, that we live a life, very often our Christianity is with what you do and you don't do to earn the love of God, which is heretical actually, because we can't. Yeah. I think that's a lovely thing about confirmation, if we take it, that it's a whole new way, if you look at it, of living in the spirit, which is free gift and grace, and that's what brings peace. I want to come back to the law in a minute, but I want to stay with the gifts of the Spirit. I um, go through each of the gifts and think how rich and wonderful they are. And of course, 
They wanted seven gifts of the Spirit for confirmation to mirror the seven days of creation. We also had the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues and values. So seven, the perfect number, really gets going there. But I think two are really rich right now. One needs a rename, but the first one I talk about in detail is prudence. We don't talk about prudential judgments anymore, but I think we should. Firstly, we should judge. This nonsense that we're not supposed to be judging anyone or anything is rubbish. But I want to compassionately judge. I want to understand what it's like to be a refugee right now. What's it like to be a woman in a man's world? What's it like to be black in a white world? What's it like to be gay in a straight world? What's it like to be disabled in an abled world? What's that like? That's a prudential judgment because you're looking at it from the other person's point of view. But prudence says that I don't say the same thing in the same way all the time, that there is a prudence. How do we adapt the good news to talk to people in a way they can hear, back to the Pentecost gift, in a way that they can hear it? That's a prudential moment. And I think even though it's a very old-fashioned word, prudence, I actually think it's really rich. The final one of the seven gifts, of course, is fear of the Lord. And when I was going through confirmation, uh, the Irish Sisters of Mercy who taught me were magnificent women and the Irish Christian brothers were great men, but they loved fear of the Lord and I was very frightened, I can assure you. But I do some work on this because actually the Hebrew word that is used about fear of the Lord in the Psalms and particularly in the book of Genesis is actually about respect or awe and wonder. It's about to be before God's majesty and being in God's presence in a way that just blows your mind. So... The fear of the Lord is not to be frightened of God. So I think that needs a rename. I think it's reverence before God and reverence, therefore, before all that God gives us. Then those gifts are meant to then tie into how we live our lives. And to your point about the spirit and the law, the bottom line becomes that Jesus says in four, three out of the four Gospels that his law is the law of love. That's not me saying, it's not trendy, it's not. He said it all comes down to loving God, loving your neighbour, and loving yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. So the law of Christianity is the law of love. So Paul comes along and rightly says, if you're living of the spirit of Christ, which is the law of love, the law takes care of itself because I have to keep asking, what is the most loving thing that I can do here? Not that that's necessarily always easy. There is such a thing as tough love. Sometimes we're gonna to have to make a stand. Sometimes we're gonna to have to fight for justice. Sometimes we're going to have to be unpopular in saying, I don't think what you said is a good thing to say. I don't think what you did is a good thing to do. So it's not as though we're saying it's all an easy ticket to do anything you like. Quite the opposite. The law of love calls us to take stands about justice and faith and peace and goodness. And I want to do that. But it comes back to how loving we can actually be. That's the spirit and law that I think Paul is trying to give us so richly when he talks about how we're confirmed in the Holy Spirit.